there's only one snack that can make me feel like I'm having the true movie theater experience, and that's popcorn. When my mom and I hang in for a girl's night, we have to get our fix, and that's where Kelly's Killer Popcorn comes in. They're a small batch gourmet popcorn company, and believe me, one bite and you'll be hooked. Made in Austin, Texas, this family-owned business has tons of flavors. My mom loves their salted agave caramel, while I have a hard time picking between black pepper or dill pickle. Hmm, maybe I'll just mix the bags together. Oh, and when my dad and brother crash our girls' night, you know that spicy nacho popcorn is coming out. Every flavor is popped in 100% real butter and is whole grain and gluten-free. Which flavor will you be choosing? Head on over to kellyskillerpopcorn.com to indulge yourself in some scary good gourmet popcorn. And make sure to tag them on Instagram at kellyskillerpopcorn so that they can see what movie you're pairing with their flavors. That's kellyskillerpopcorn.com for American-made, small-batch, delicious popcorn. I might be vegetarian, but that doesn't mean I can't enjoy a good spice rub. My favorite place to get them is Smoked Bros, a veteran-owned and operated business that sells premium handcrafted dry rubs, spice blends, and seasonings. Guys, you can even put it on your popcorn. My favorites are Honey Badger, because he doesn't give a bleep, and Jelly and Peanut Flavor Topping, because mm, 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 some things just taste better together. The website even has recipes, so go check out smokedbros.com to support a veteran-owned and operated business and fill your cabinet with delicious flavor. On the last episode of the Video Archives podcast, Roger and Quentin locked Molasar back in the keep. Boom! A film by Michael Mann, and he just doubles down on ownership made sense of the monster in the relic. It's the keep without Nazis. Yeah. <laughs> in a museum. And enjoyed an espresso on the Cafe Express. He's, and I don't throw this analogy around easily, he's very much a chaplain. And now we bring you the after show, your one-stop shop for exclusive content from Quentin and Roger and even more film discussion on your favorite VHS titles. I'm your traveling coffee saleswoman, Gala Avery, ready to sit down over an espresso and talk film or in my case, an Arnold Palmer. Breaking News Bulletin, coming to you live. Today is August 23rd, which means it's Roger's birthday. Dad, I love you so much. Besides being my dad, you're also my mentor and my boss. And most importantly, you're my best friend. You've taught me everything that I know. You've fostered my love for movies. And I just can't thank you enough for that. So, what little thing I can do for you is dedicate this episode to you. Everyone out there in podcast land, make sure that you go and show Roger some love today. Now, back to our regularly scheduled programming. Were you guys surprised about our awards show? That makes two of us. I got the chance to ask Quentin about the reason why we introduced awards in episode three. So Quentin, we didn't do awards the first two episodes. Why did we start doing them episode three? I'm having a hard time remembering back that far. <laughs> <laughs> feels like eons ago. It feels, yeah, it feels like before the pandemic that we recorded that episode. Um, I think it was my intention all along. And then I think, uh, I'm not sure. It might be either A, it was my intention all along. And in the first two episodes, we got so caught up in just doing them that I forgot and remembered on the third one. I don't think I said, hey, we're going to do awards, so get your shit together. No, you for sure did not. Okay, I think, so I, I think no, it, it was, was a surprise to all of us. Okay, I think it was a surprise. 
But there is a little bit in there that might simply be <laughs> that I thought of the awards because I was so angry with you for the way you <laughs> diss Penelope Ann Miller that I wanted to go on record of being a Penelope Ann Miller fan. And, it's, <laughs> and, her, and her performance in Relic. And her performance in Relic. You know, that I invented Best Actress <laughs> on the spur of the moment just to stand up and be counted against this. Now, see, if I know, had known you could do that, I would have invented the award show for Moonraker. <laughs> It all I think you conveniently waited until Moonraker was done before you invented the award yes, show. Yes, I mean, that, that actually might be true. I might have <laughs> planned on doing it for the second episode, but when I realized how Moonraker would sweep it. <laughs> and it still would. I put the kibosh on the whole thing. My best actor for the Moonraker episode would be Roger Moore and folks. <laughs> <laughs> on this episode of The After Show... I'm unlocking the video vault, our backlog of full film discussions between Quentin and Roger that have yet to make it on the air. Let's unlock the vault and see what we find. Out of the vault, I present a discussion on Jerry Sindel's 1974 film, Teenager. The way I really wanted to shoot that scene. Well, look, if it had been DeMille in the old days, Christ, he would have had... Three or four, maybe more cameras rolling. Just to get this moment. But get it, whatever it takes. Oh, I know they say I'm uncontrollable. They say that about all great directors. But if you do get it, you're a genius. If you don't... Teenager was one of the first movies we watched and recorded, but it hasn't made it on the air. Until now. Before Quentin reads the back of the box, there's a little bit of history that needs to be explained about this movie. It's obvious when you watch the movie, it was originally called The Real Thing. Mm-hmm. And this is one, let me tell the story about it first. Yeah, yeah. And then go into the uh, go into the film. Jerry Sandel had made a, in the late 60s, and made a, 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 not a sex movie, but a, you know, a sexual drama, something along the lines of something like a, um, Bob and Carol, Ted and Alice. Then he did a film that we watched just recently. Um, the only time he actually did a movie for Hollywood with a, legit budget, a film for CBS for their theatrical arm that was uh, shown on CBS television called Harpy with um, uh, Hugh O'Brien and Elizabeth Ashley. And we watched it and it's a pretty good film. I I liked it a lot. Then around 74, he starts working for a a company that has a, a small theater chain. They come to him and they go, well, look, since you've made a movie before, why don't you make a really cheap movie for us that we can release in our theaters? And so he does, and the result is the film, uh, um, the real thing. The great Jack H. Harris, the producer of uh, Dark Star and Schlock and Equinox and The Blob, found uh, found the real thing, liked to realize it was a good piece of work, bought it up, and slapped the extremely misleading title "Teenager" on it. At the time of recording, this film only had eleven logs on Letterboxd. So, what's the movie about? Let's find out. To explain the story of teenagers, let's read the back of the New World video box. Also in the action section, I can see they've listed it here. Oh, yeah, you're right. It's an on action film. Goes around the action section for all the mom and pops who don't know where to put it. Teenager is an irreverent and shocking chronicle of three desperate people, all working on the same movie, all running from their past, and all on a careless collision course with violence. Charlie, she's named Billy, uh, 
the renegade director, as obsessed with using people as he is with making movies. He will do anything to get the right shot. Anything. Eddie, the handsome and wild leading man, a reckless pawn in Charlie's grand scheme, a victim of his own ego. He has big dreams, but even bigger delusions. And Carrie, beautiful, restless, and 16. Torn between the Hollywood spectacle and her small-town morality, she's ready to try anything. A night quite prepared for her initiation into a movie that's gone. Out of control. <laughs> Color. Running time. 91 minutes. Here's the thing. I've seen this video box before. If you think the Jack H. Harris movie poster is misleading for the film that I described about filmmaking, then the New World Video Box has it beat by 10. Because I never saw this film because the, the box, okay, one, it's it's makes it look like a child prostitute Hollywood Boulevard movie along the lines of Angel and Avenging Angel. And there's a movie called Streetwalking yeah. and Streets and she's actually, Alley Cat. She's actually standing on a Hollywood star. Yeah. As if like, so it's like a, so the, a, like a 60 year old prostitute who's never in the film is flash, flashing her underwear, is flashing her underwear, soliciting clients on, you know, on the Walk of Fame. So that's why I never got around to seeing it. And like I said, the only reason I ended up watching this was because Andrea Kagan was in it and I was uh, on a trip to check out more of her stuff. And to me, this was a surprise. Hmm. I don't know if that really explains the movie. There's a lot more to this film than what's on the back of the box. Quentin did some digging and found some older views of the film that helped shed light on what we're really in store for. Now, when I saw Teenager, I was like, wow, never heard of this thing before. I'd seen, the, I'd seen the box before, oddly enough, but I'd never heard of it before. And so I went looking that has some, get some information on it. I uh, went on the newspapers and found out that it was released uh, in California, at least in Sacramento, uh, but it was never reviewed in the Los Angeles Times. I'm not sure if it ever made Los Angeles County, but I was able to track down two reviews for it, retrospective reviews, one in um, issue 18 edition of Psychotronic Video Magazine, where Michael Weldon reviews it. Somebody must have seen Hopper's The Last Movie and decided to make a simpler variation on the theme. Billy, an egotistical low-budget director, who looks a bit like Roger Corman, convinces the young stars of his new biker movie to invade a small town for real while he films the realistic action. The locals get real riled up and a death results. This isn't a movie anymore! A scene in a church copies the Wild Angels. Meanwhile, a local girl, the teenager of the misleading title, and the lead actor fall in love. With Sue Bernard from Faster Pussycat and John Holmes, who I forgot, as yeah, a cop. That's John right. Holmes is in the movie playing a cop. Yeah, you actually freeze. I don't know if you freeze framed it, but you. I said, is that John Holmes? Yeah. <laughs> you were like, do you know who that is? And yeah. I was looking at it and I was like, like it was defying logic. It was defying, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was defying the, oh, that's John Holmes. And then in uh, issue number 15 of Shock Cinema, there's a retrospective review mm -hmm. that says, I have a fondness for movies about movie making, as well as 70s biker flicks. And this weird, badly titled, no-budgeter covers both genres in one swoop. Directed by Gerald Seth Sindel, it follows an obsessive director whose dream project is a biker movie so believable that it's difficult to know where fiction ends and reality begins. 
Joe Warfield stars as driven young Billy Hazelrod, whose last effort was a new wave far out film that was part Fellini, part trip, and part film school masturbatory slop. <laughs> On the verge of a self-proclaimed breakthrough, his new project is a violent improvisational biker flick for which he dresses his amateur actors up as road scum takes them and his minimalistic crew to a rural shithole, and while out-informing the populace, uses it as the backdrop for his grimy epic. In the process, a 16-year-old local girl is swept up by these sophisticated city folk and is soon swapping more than spit with one of the actors. Manipulating his actors and pissing off the unsuspecting residents, the cast occasionally loses their grasp on reality and causes actual vandalism and violence which is then written into the script. E.g., ergo, when Billy stages a rape scene in the church, the locals beat the piss out of him, and it all becomes an extremely realistic subplot. But when an accidental murder occurs on camera, the actors realize they might have taken their craft too far, even as Billy's only thought is to get a good shot of the body. Hey, it's all in the name of art. Although this provides little insight on how low-budget films are actually made, simply using the idea as a springboard, the script puts a likably pretentious spin on its exploitation concept. Warfield makes a believable, self-destructed dickhead, while the only recognizable co-star is 1966 Playboy Playmate Sue Bernard as Billy's lead actress, who gets lost in her biker babe psycho bitch role. <laughs> a big change from her <laughs> passive supporting turn and master pussycat. Smarter and stranger than you'd initially expect, this is a solid concept, held back by some mediocre performances and a distinct lack of budget. Yeah. I don't know if I agree with the mediocre performances, but the distinct lack of budget, you know, uh, clips the film's wings just a little bit. They're capturing While what it, they can. And they're, they're, he's also attempting to do on some level what's happening in the movie. Now that sounds more like it. When watching Teenager, it's hard to believe that what we see on screen was filmed in only 10 days. Roger and Quentin clue us in as to how Sindel made a small movie feel big. Now, this is a subgenre in movies that I'm actually a fan of, and that is low budget movies about the making of low budget movies. It's a, it doesn't sound like that would be a, uh, a big subgenre, but there's actually quite a few of them. Yeah, um, Hollywood Boulevard, Hollywood Man. The Dirt Bike Gang. There's yeah. a, a black exploitation version of that called The Baron, which is interesting. There's there's, there's a few. You know, another movie making a low budget movie is uh, The Big Picture. Oh yeah. And what was the name of the Tom DeCillo film uh, with Steve oh, Buscemi? Uh, 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 Living in Oblivion. Living in Oblivion. That's it. Well, there's a whole aspect that teenager is also just uh, quite a bit like um, Dennis Hopper's The Last Movie. Yeah, for sure. To some degree, but I actually I think there's also another inspiration. I actually think. Part of the jumping off point for the inspiration of, of Teenager, or the real thing, as its real title is called, the way Haskell Wexler shot Medium Cool. Yeah. By going to the Democratic uh, uh, convention and just taking his actors, sticking him into this wild situation that's already going on mm -hmm. and just capturing whatever happens. I mean, to some degree, I mean, well, not even to some degree, almost to every degree, what the jackass guys do in their movies is what they do in Teenager, except they're not going for comedy. They're going to actually provoke violence. So this is about uh, a megalomaniac director is going to be directing a, a biker film. He's got a small little crew. He's got guys that he says, oh, they're, they're, they're stunt people first and actors second. So thus they can, like, they can ride the motorcycles. 
And what he wants to do is he wants to take the gang into a small town and have them stir up the town, have them terrify the town. And then he's going to film it all. And he wants to create a situation where they just act crazy and act like bikers and maybe the town will fight back and he'll capture it all on film. He's going to create a happening. He's going to create an event. He has an amazing line where he says like, you know, we're not here to make a movie. We're here to make something happen. Yeah. It's it's very uh, postmodern. Now, I thought this movie was really, really special. It's not perfect. Um, but then I actually ended up talking to Jerry Sindel. I, 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 I know somebody who knows him. And when I found out how little money he had to make the movie and how little time he had to make the movie, every single problem that I had just flew out the window. He made this whole, he shot it on Super 16. He made the whole feature for $40,000. Now, one of the things, one of the weaknesses of the film that I remember watching is, okay, as good as the film is, as, as strong as I think the film is, it's not necessarily a realistic story of how a low-budget film is shot. You know, any more than Boogie Nights is the realistic depiction of the porn industry at that era. It's fanciful. It's a fanciful, but, it, but that's okay because it has other fish to fry. And the same thing with Teenager. It mm -hmm. has other fish to fry. But like, for instance, um, they have four actors that they're filming. There's uh, the director, Joe Warfield. This guy looks so much like Roger Corman that it, in the 70s, if you were doing the Roger Corman story, you would just cast this guy. Yeah, I'm not even sure I would enjoy this movie had he not looked exactly like Roger Corman. Yeah. Because I kept watching it thinking, oh, this is like Roger Corman acting in a movie. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, Playing a kind of Roger Corman <laughs> director. It's uncanny. <laughs> it's incredible. It looks like Roger Corman, like in the late 60s. Uh, and the guy does a fantastic job. I mean, he's a prick. You don't like him. But that doesn't mean you don't want to see him accomplish what he wants to accomplish. We're, as filmmakers, we're kind of on his side. Uh, you know, uh, um, you have to be a little bit of an asshole yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> to, to get what you need done. But he does lead the movie. There's such a thing about casting a lead. A lead carries a movie. A lead, there's a reason why they call them the, the lead. They put the film on their shoulders. And if they have the force of personality and the force of of performance, then they take the story and they take the movie and they take you from the beginning and they take you all the way to the end. He does that perfectly. There's him, the director, there's the cameraman, and then there's his girlfriend who basically plays the entire rest of the crew. Yeah, I'm not sure there is a sound person. Is no, there, there is sound no person? sound person. There I, is no I never ever see a sound no, guy. No, there is no sound, but they just forget about the idea that they would have a sound person. She's basically... The script supervisor, but she's the script supervisor. She's apparently the producer. Yeah, the producer. She's the first AD. She's the head of transpo. She's the head of wardrobe. She's everything. She's, you know, and his conscience, which he never listens yeah. to. What, what I found really super admirable about, uh -huh. especially about his performance and, uh -huh. and really what makes me love movies of this scale is that they don't have enough money for a whole crew, for yeah. a whole fake crew. And so instead... You've got this uh, lead guy. Is it Billy? Yeah. Uh, Billy. And he is selling the fact that this is a big production. The, the way the camera is staying on him and he's making a big production of it. Okay, we got to do this over here. Are you ready over there? Are you ready? Okay, we're going to keep this in focus. And he's talking to different people off camera and everything. And he's doing his very best through the sheer force 
of his performance well, yeah. to, to make it feel like you're on a big bustling movie set. To conjure up a crew. And There's he, no one there. No, you, <laughs> you pointed that out and you're right. The fallacy of how few people are working on the film, a lot of people might go over their heads because yeah. he's actually filling in the-, the um, He's making it feel big, even though there's nothing there. He's making it feel big. Now, the thing is we're watching the movie and I'm thinking to myself, Billy's filming the bikes coming into town and they're following behind the bikes. Well, that sounds like the most boring footage fucking ever because Jerry, the director, has got the good angle. He's in front of them. <laughs> so you're never buying that Billy is that good of a filmmaker judging by the angles that he's forced to shoot because he can't share the same angles as the actual director of the movie. But I was wondering why they didn't just film their crew filming these guys. They would let have the two, fourth wall vanish. They would have had two cameras going on. There is a crew filming and like, well, let them be part of this imaginary crew. Yeah, sounded, the real crew can be the fake crew in the movie. I mean, that to me, that seemed the way to solve it. And it all well, made it, complete sense. It is a way to solve it. I've been working for years on this mm -hmm. book of Brady Sinellis's Glamorama. Mm -hmm. And the whole idea of that is that there's this crew following him around. Mm -hmm. And part of the conceit of it was, well, let's just make the actual crew mm -hmm. part of the production. So I bring it up to him. But why didn't he do it that way? And he was like, I couldn't do all that shit in 10 days. <laughs> <laughs> I had enough people to follow as it was. I hear what you're saying. That's not a, it's a good idea, but that's just too much staging for me to pull off in the 10 days that I had. You know, the, just following those people was enough. I could accomplish that. I couldn't accomplish doing anything bigger than that. What you're talking about just would I wouldn't have been able to orchestrate. It. Which frankly, when you're working at a low budget to know what your limitations are and to mm -hmm. stay within your lane yeah. is as how you successfully finish a movie. Want to know what your favorite writers, directors, actors, and photographers are secretly interested in? Check out The Gala Show, where each week a guest of my choosing brings an entirely new topic to the mic, and it can be anything they want to discuss. The catch? They only have 30 minutes. Join me, your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery, every Thursday for a new discussion on The Gala Show, available wherever you get your podcasts. Let's find out what drew Quentin and Roger to this film, along with a brief discussion on Joe Viola's The Hot Box. Now, how I came across this movie, how I ended up choosing this movie, I had watched uh, uh, recently another film that I hadn't seen in a long time. Uh, the one I mentioned earlier, uh, the uh, Joe Viola, Jonathan Demme movie, uh, The Hot Box. And in that movie, there's four actresses. Margaret Markov is the one that does the most. But I was surprised that I, I wasn't that familiar with them. And there's this one gal in there named Drea Kagan, that's very funny in the movie, but she's almost like playing like a, a, a Goldie Hawn dingbat kind of character. And she never really breaks the character. Or All the other characters of the hot box go through this hell and are completely different people by the time they get to the end of the movie. <laughs> Not Andrea Kagan. She's never affected. Every line she has is a joke and everything. Like She's just kind of the Goldie Hawn character. And she's very, very funny in it. So I look to see what else she's done. And one of the films is Teenager. And so then she comes in in this movie. She's completely different in this movie. In this movie, she plays uh, a local 16-year-old girl in the in the town. She's, ex yeah, every, uh, the whole rest of the town wants to get chase them out of there. 
but she's excited about seeing what, what a, a movie crew is like and whatever. And so she's hanging around and she kind of gives them the, the lowdown on what's going on in town. And she ends up having an affair slash relationship. They fall in love with one of the, the biker actors uh, in the movie. This is a completely different performance that she gives in the hot box, which is just completely comedic in every every aspect. Here, this is a very naturalistic performance. This is very she 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 goes a long way to grounding the movie. All the women in this film are very very interesting. There's the two bikers that are sort of the the lead biker guys, and then there's another biker guy who's like a stuntman guy, and then there's um, the actress Sue Bernard. Now, if you know who Sue Bernard is, uh, she's the uh, the girl in the bikini that gets kidnapped by Varla and her team in Faster Pussycat, Kill, Kill, Kill. And she was also later married to uh, Jason Miller and is the mother of uh, Joshua Miller from yep. uh, Near Dark and uh, River's Edge. And River's Edge. Um, and it's a friend of mine, <laughs> like watching movies with his mom. Like, well, hey, I just watched a movie with your mom. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, the director's got like has this female producer that he's working with, and uh, she's like, you know, he's like, I'm going to create this situation, and it's just going to happen. She goes, Well, are you going to get actors to go along with this? She goes, well, look, if I ever bring it up to him, they're going to say no. Well, look, we got a good script. We got a good script. We'll just shoot the script, you know. But once I get them out there, once they're in the town, they'll see how exciting it is. They'll see how much fun it is. And I think I'll be able to talk them into it. But it's going to, I'll seduce them into it as it goes. And so that we know that that's his whole plan. And he wants the town to hate them. He wants the town to attack them with pitchforks yeah. and axes and and bottles. He and wants stuff. to create a violent happening. He wants he to create a violent happening film. and he captures it all. And, uh, and, and actually, I, actually there's an important uh-huh. part of the movie actually, before we lean, we lean into that is there's a moment where they're preparing a shot, like uh-huh. where an actress is laying on the ground yeah, and she's supposed to be, you know, like these are bikers. And mm-hmm. so they're supposed to be like in the shot, they're going to be like pulling her clothes off, yeah, or, raping her, yeah, raping her. And so they're preparing for the scene and, you know, they're they're kind of talking about it. And the guy's sitting on top of her and he's like, okay. Uh, and I can't remember what her name is, but okay, Jane, uh, uh-huh. I'm going to, does this hurt? What if, what if I put my hands here? Yeah. Like they're kind of talking and she's like, oh no. And she's kind of laughing and, oh yeah, no, yeah. that's okay. No, I'm comfortable with no, that. No, they're staging the rape They're scene. staging yeah. it and they're talking it through and they're actually doing what a per, what professionally you would do on a real movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the director is just like, no, 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 fuck all this. <laughs> no, we're going to go do something else. Yeah. Because he wants it to be a happening. And they're actually all really trying to create like artifice. Yeah. They're trying to create an actual movie. They're actually trying to be professional. Mm-hmm. He's pushing some kind of psychological envelope in himself, I think. They go and they do some weird thing in town and the, and the town reacts and and comes a big fight. Now, the town at a certain point realizes that this is a movie, but they just think also these guys are a bunch of movie scum. Get out of here. If you come around this town again, we're going to show you. But for some reason, they can only uh, you know, they they don't necessarily think of the director and everybody as part of the crew. It's mostly the actors because the actors are the ones interfacing and the cameras are off, you know, yeah. shooting things from afar. Yeah. So they, they they keep focusing on these like these fucking actors. These scumbag, That's the movie people. These scumbag Hollywood bikers. All right. Yeah. And um, <laughs> the director finds out from the local girl that there's only two spots in town because the town is fucking dead. The only two spots in town that anyone goes to is this one bar and the church. And the director's idea is to break into the church <laughs> and then stage the rape scene in the church. 
No permits, no asking permission, yeah. no nothing. Just burst into the church, stage the rape scene there, and then hope the town shows up and starts shit. Yeah. And that exactly happens. And it's one of the best scenes in the movie. That's when the movie suddenly coalesced. And it's also one of those things where it's crazy what this guy's trying to do. But when they at first pull it off, they're all partying. They're all laughing about it. And you kind of enjoy it. You're kind of with them. You're happy that they pulled it off. It's almost a aphrodisiac kind of uh, sequence. And then it all leads to another big scene where they're going to go into the local store run by the guy who hates them the most. Improv more. Yeah. And they're going to improv more like they're taking over the store. Now, by this time, the actors have completely drunken the Kool-Aid and they are now out to fuck with this town and to just live their characters to the most. Which, strangely enough, Sue Bernard, the one who goes the craziest. And if you're a bit fan of uh, Russ Meyer's Faster Pussycat, Kill, 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 to see Sue Bernard playing the crazy one. In it's the like movie, a reversal. It's a complete reversal. For anyone who is interested in checking out Andrea Kagan's performance in The Hot Box, at the time of this recording, it's available on YouTube. As for Sue Bernard and Faster Pussycat Kill Kill, you'll have to get some physical media to watch that one. There's so many standout performances in Teenager. And when talking about one character, I couldn't help but jump in to give my opinion on her. Let's talk about Steve, the coolest female producer around. You know, one thing we should talk about in Teenager is the producer character, Mm -hmm. Steve. There's this producer, Steve, who's Mm -hmm. like kind of Actually, kind of a Roger Corman type, she's, right? I mean, she's ta- she talks in the same kind of practical commercial sense that Corman talks about whenever he talks about film. Yeah, and, and uh, he goes to her for the money. It's strange because his girlfriend, his partner in crime, so to speak, mm-hmm. she's like, yeah, you go do what you got to do to get the movie made. The notion is he's got to go sleep with this old lady mm-hmm. to get the money to make his movie. But oddly enough, strangely enough, the movie does seem to have respect for her. Yeah. She's treated as a character with respect. When he goes back after the kind of failure of the- She actually, she actually, she's not even mad at him when it looks like the whole thing kind of blew up. She goes, well, it was a chance anyway. We we, we took our shot. She's super practical about it. She's like, oh, we'll make something out of it. Maybe not. Now look, these things happen. Uh, We move on. No, she's going to cut it up for uh, second unit footage for other biker films. That was actually one of my favorite moments in the whole movie was that whole uh, tracking shot through the production offices or whatever. Quentin, I have to jump in real quick because I've been biting my tongue all week hearing you guys talk about Steve Mm -hmm. (laughs) all week because all you guys do when you talk about Steve is talk about how the director does not want to sleep with Steve. Mm -hmm. I read the movie completely the opposite. Mm -hmm. Actually, that his wife is like, why do you got to go do that? Mm -hmm. And he's saying, I got to go do what I got to go do. But he's kind of into Steve. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm reading it wrong or if it's because I'm a young woman or Mm -hmm. something. And maybe Steve. So you actually you actually read it as though like he has a couple he has a couple close up grimace moments where he's like, "Okay, I I got to do this. I don't know. Guys are weird like that. Maybe he's kind of into Steve. (laughs) I kind of thought he was into Steve. He keeps going back to her. He they're getting an equal trade opportunity, Mm -hmm. in my opinion, at least. I think he absolutely respects Steve. That's for one. And two, he digs the fact that she digs him. And I mean about the fact that she she actually believes. I actually kind of respect Steve. I respect Steve too. <laughs> Steve, she was my favorite actress in the movie. Yeah, she has that. She has She's that, great. She has that great line. She goes, you have no respect for authority. You invite chaos constantly. And you're always trying to do the impossible. But one day you just might do it. 
Yeah. And the day you do, I want to own part of that movie. <laughs> That's the Hollywood idea. Is there anything more romantic somebody could tell a filmmaker? No, it's true. That's... Than this wild hair you have on your ass that you keep trying to pluck that I think that you actually might do it one of these days. Yeah. And I'm going to be there when it happens. <laughs> yeah, that is attractive. That's attractive. And frankly, to tell you the truth, in a weird way, along with the director's megalomania, it's a little overblown, but not that much overblown. Not that much overblown. We've all said or felt things similar to yeah. where his, his emotions, uh, i.e. us directors. Uh, but normally where a movie about low-budget filmmaking falls apart is in their dramatizations of the producers. They're always, you know, big cigars. Caricatures. Yeah, I never, yeah, they're all caricatures. You know, I never buy the producer in uh, uh, Bogdanovich's Targets, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is the most realistic character in the whole film. And everything she says has a practicality you can imagine coming from a, uh, coming from a producer. I.e. even her faith in Billy. You mm -hmm. know, because she's going to cut up the, she's going to cut up his footage Filmmakers are fucking crazy. Yeah. She knows that. She's going to cut up his footage and just use it for second unit footage for a bunch of other uh, driving stuff. She does it, And he's like, he's begging her, no, please don't do this. This is going to be the best movie. I just need 20 more minutes. So just please, please, please just let me finish it. And he makes a good case. Yeah. And she, she signs the check. But it's not all sunshine and rainbows for teenager. Quentin and Roger acknowledge the pitfalls of making this kind of film. At the end of the day, the movie suffers from the same problem that the director suffers from in, uh, in, in, in the movie within the movie. He makes a really wild film, but it's only an hour long. And so it's just not long enough. And that's pretty much the problem with Teenager. The big scene that happens in the store is really terrific. And then one of the, the, the lead character, biker guy, hops on his bike the teenager girl from the uh, Andrea Kagan hops on the back of it and they drive off. Then the film rolls out. Yeah, Me and Roger looked at each other. We were like, what an ending. That's fantastic. Yeah. Okay. Well, the film actually has about like 25 minutes. More to go. Yeah, suddenly it picked up again. And it was like, Oh, <laughs> there's a whole third act. All right. And uh, I, at first I wasn't into the third act. Then I got kind of into it, especially because the Subinard scene has actually yeah. got me into it. And then I was kind of interested in it. But if the movie had ended with the film rolling out, I mean, it would have been a home run. In preparation for the discussion on Teenager, we all sat down together and watched another film by Jerry Sindel, 1971's Harpy. Harpy isn't available to stream, but the DVD is definitely worth tracking down. Don't tell anyone, but I actually prefer Harpy to Teenager. I can't stop thinking about the awesome bird sequences in that movie. Jerry Sindel's films feature a kaleidoscope of secondary characters. Up next, the duo talk about another of his films, H-O-T-S, Hots. I have to say, all of the kind of secondary characters in the movie, Jerry's movies that I've seen mm -hmm. are fantastic. Yeah. The secondary characters in Harpy mm -hmm. were Awesome. They yeah, were yeah. they were amazing performances. They like they suddenly they would pop in like the mother character in Harpy yeah. comes in and she's like suddenly stealing she's like the, the star movie. of her own sitcom that, when she comes in. Yeah, that uh that ad man from oh, Madison that, no, Avenue that guy, shows he's up. the best performance of the whole film. He he's shows fantastic. up in that movie. It's amazing. And I mean, we should probably talk a little bit about Harpy mm -hmm. because uh doing that right before this 
and having all the resources in the world and then coming and having like no resources. <laughs> well, yeah. now here's the thing though. Um, Jerry Sindel made one more movie and then he quit the movie business and then he entered the um, uh, publishing business. Uh, I believe to this day, if I'm not mistaken. But now, well, I said he did one more movie. It's the last movie he did that is that he's the most known for. That's the movie that people know about because he is the director of HOTS. H-O-T-S. It's an the anagram. Theater. Yeah. I saw the Hexploitation movie HOTS when it came out at the theaters. But an entire generation in the 80s saw HOTS when it played ad nauseum between Showtime and Cinemax and yeah. HBO. That's where I caught it. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a puberty movie for an entire generation in the yeah. 80s. I had it on Showtime. That was Jerry Sandel's. Uh, and, and, and speaking of which, to make your point about the secondary characters being good in Sandel movies is... Um, like he's really getting good performances out of these well, the thing small that, day players. Well, the, one of the things, if you remember Hots well, one of the things that's actually really interesting about it is it's like a sexy version of Animal House, but with women. But the thing about Hots that distinguishes it is that the bitch girl for the other sorority steals the movie. Yeah. She, you actually, she's, it's one of those things where you actually start rooting for the bitch girl because she's drastically the best actress. Of it's the also, group. it's, it's also the, 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 not largest, but the most colorful character to play. She's a, she's a terrific <laughs> character. She's yeah. a terrific character. She has a really funny drunk. See, it's Lindsay Bloom, who later ended up playing uh, Velma, uh, Mike Hammer's secretary on the uh, Stacey Keach, uh, Mike Hammer. So, and she's also six-pack Annie, and she's in a, a bunch of things. But she's wonderful in the film. When Teenager was released, it made its rounds in the drive-in theaters. Quentin found some amazing advertisements, which revealed what movies were played alongside of it. It's got the main ad for the Sacramento newspaper, but it's playing on a triple feature at a drive-in. All right, so it's a it's it's teenager playing with sixteen, the movie called Sixteen, and the movie called Weekend with the Babysitter. I love their little um, the things that they write. Yeah, here we go. Sixteen, an eyeful. Yeah, <laughs> without a stitch, riot. <laughs> and it's okay. Yeah. So that is uh, we also have another uh, listing of it. All right, playing uh, at a, a drive-in called uh, the Drive-in Van Dyke. <laughs> A favorite. Yeah. So number uh, first, a uh, first title is Andrew Hagen in the Teenager. Number two is Without a Stitch. <laughs> <laughs> and three is again sixteen. Naturally, Teenager has to play with sixteen. Of course, it's a perfect double feature. <laughs> now, and I don't know what Without a Stitch is, but okay. although that was actually one of the um, after um, I am Curious Yellow, that was the second Swedish sex film to come out with a. Uh, uh, like sexual scenes in it, but it's a comedy. Do you remember when I Am Curious Yellow used to play at the drive-in theater that was in Redondo? No, I do not. And you could actually see it from PCH. You could uh -huh. go watch it. <laughs> it was unbelievable. Want to make it a double feature? 16, also known as Like a Crow on a June Bug, is available on Amazon to rent. Fun fact, Crows are considered to be ill omens, and the word June bug is slang in the South for a young person with little to no life experience. I actually enjoyed 16 so much that I picked up a new world home video copy of it for $28. Want to know what I thought about Teenager? Quentin and Roger invited me into the conversation. My VHS of Teenager cost me $39.99. Teenager, it's on VHS, 
which I have my VHS tape here, which I see mm. is the same as Quentin's. And it is also available on YouTube, which is how I originally saw it. Oh, really? Uh, the rip on YouTube is absolutely terrible. <laughs> it is so terrible that during the sex scene, they censor it for you just by the low bit rate. So you don't have to worry about that. You can watch that with your family if you really feel like it. It, it has a strategic tracking yeah. problem. Now, I am not as much of a fan of this movie as I am with Harpy, mm-hmm. which we watched also. Yes. That was another, that I, Harpy was a, being the movie, the TV movie. That uh, the director, uh, uh, Jerry Sandel, uh, directed, we watched the other day as part of our background. Yes, and um, I like that movie a lot more. I will say that watching this movie, though, I liked it because I'm 100% sure that they filmed this movie on Latigo Canyon, Mm -hmm. which I drive all the time. So I was like, oh, I could just drive off there and I could go reenact this scene. It's a really fun feeling seeing things uh, that you know and love. Yeah, actually watching this and Harpy, which is all shot around that same area. Well, I found out exactly where Harpy was actually shot. You did? I was actually searching for that house. Yeah, it was, uh, well, and I I even know the name of the house now. Really? Uh, Yeah. Oh, my God. What is it? Yeah, it's... uh, uh, it's in the hills northwest of Fresno, and oh. it's the James D. Hallowell home, and it's on Toll House Road. And I'll just say, I did not really like this movie so much. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if it's because of the bad quality I watched it on, or maybe just that it wasn't the kind of movie for me. Um, but I will say that the scene where the girl is brushing her teeth, mm-hmm. like she's being directed <laughs> and she's brushing her teeth, is the most uncomfortable I have been in a movie in a very long time. <laughs> that scene is so uncomfortable. I was just ugh, like, I don't want to watch her brushing her teeth anymore. Yeah, I actually like that movie except for that scene because he's trying to do a stylistic thing that he's not pulling off. Yeah, yeah it was just uh, not great. For yeah. me, I'm in Camp Harpy, not Camp Teenager. <laughs> okay, just, that's me. And that's the show. Thanks so much for tuning into the Video Archives After Show. Have a burning question you want the answers to? Make sure to write in for a chance to have your question featured on an upcoming episode. Next week, join Quentin and Roger as they discuss three new films. Want to know ahead of time what we're watching? Here's a riddle for all of you loyal fans out there. Try and figure it out. The first film is all about tattoos. Ahem, I mean, skin illustrations. The second film is directed by a member of the French New Wave and features an actor from the first. And the third is a Mexican horror movie that's villain is an evil left hand. But whose? I'm your evolutionary biologist in search for her grant, Gala Avery, signing out. See you next time on the Video Archives After Show. Despite me sharing the same last name with this charity, I don't have any affiliation with it, besides the fact the issue is very near and dear to my heart. Did you know that in the United States, 2.7 million children currently have a parent in prison, and it's estimated that 10 million children have experienced parental incarceration at some point in their lives? I was one of these kids, and as an adult, I am really grateful to be able to give back to Project Avery. Their mission is to build leadership from within by supporting community through programs such as mentoring and outdoor education, and also to remove the stigma surrounding having a parent that's incarcerated. You don't have to feel alone. If you know a kid who could use these resources or would like to donate money or time to the charity, please go to Project Avery, that's A-V-A-R-Y dot org, to check out what this amazing charity is all about. Again, that's projectavery.org. Thank you guys from the bottom of my heart.
Want to know what your favorite writers, directors, actors, and photographers are secretly interested in? Check out The Gala Show, where each week a guest of my choosing brings an entirely new topic to the mic, and it can be anything they want to discuss. The catch? They only have 30 minutes. Join me, your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery, every Thursday for a new discussion on The Gala Show, available wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.